Our sermon this morning is entitled, Doing the Most Good. As I was uh, preparing, the one thing that I kept kind of going back to was, um, if you've ever seen the Salvation Army, you guys are probably familiar with the Salvation Army, uh, on their buildings and on, uh, if you've ever seen one of their trucks, one of their delivery trucks, that's their slogan. Uh, you'll, you'll see it. You'll probably, you know, if you've probably seen it over Christmas, or you know, I'm sure you'll see it again uh, throughout the year. Um, and that's, that's kind of their motto, is doing the most good. And as I was reading Titus chapter 3, that seemed to be uh, what kept coming up. Um, and, uh, when you know, Paul's writing to Titus, where this finishes up the, the book of Titus, uh, last chapter, chapter 3. Um, and uh, Paul repeats this over and over. In verse 1, Paul says that Christians should be ready for every good work. In verse 8, he says... We should be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And then all the way at the end, he says it again in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So it's a repeated theme in in this third chapter of Titus. So I'm going to read the passage. Uh, I invite you to read along with me if you have a a pew Bible or your own Bible with you or it'll be on screen. I'm going to read the passage and uh, pray, and then we'll uh, look at it together. And Paul says to Titus, remind them, speaking of, you know, Titus speaking to his congregation, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, 
see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word uh, that you inspired your Apostle Paul to write to Titus. And we thank you that you have preserved your word, not just for Titus's instruction and for the instruction of the congregation that he was overseeing, but down through the generations, Lord, you have preserved your word and it has come to us today in our own language. What a blessing. What a, what a, what a great privilege that we have um, that your word has been preserved for us and that we can know you through knowing your word, through learning your word and studying your word, and we can know what you expect of us. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this chapter together, that you would use it in our lives to mold and shape our thoughts, our attitudes, our, and our actions, Lord, that um, we might be a people who are set apart for you and a people who are eager for good works. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, all right, we'll just start in verse 1. Paul tells Titus, and it it, it really, you know, this could, a long passage in it, it could be multiple sermons, but uh, Ben's coming back soon. (laughs) Amen. Thank you, Lord. So, um, and and, and so, you know, we're going to be flying through this pretty quick. Uh, so that we can get get through it, um, but uh, you know, in verse one, Paul says that. It, it, well, verses one through eight, its section kind of breaks down. It, basically, Paul describes the goodness and loving kindness of God, and you know, in turn, kind of inspires and motivates and drives the goodness and loving kindness of God's people. That's really, if you were to kind of outline it, I think that would be a good outline uh, point. And, and in verse 1, Paul says that uh, Christians are to be characterized by submission. We're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And, and be characterized by a readiness to, to do good. Anyone and everyone, anytime, anywhere. Uh, Christians should have a concern for the good of the society in which they live, regardless of the society in which they live. The, the fact is that because we are, as Christians, because we are citizens of heaven, we make the best citizens of any country in, in any form of government. Uh, and that's what Jesus said that that's what his followers would be like. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And Jesus said his followers would be the salt of the earth. We're the people who preserve societies and are supposed to preserve them and hold back corruption. And he also said that Jesus' followers would be the light of the world. Which, you know, what does light do? It exposes darkness, and light drives back darkness. And even in the Old Testament, we see God sent Israel into exile. In Jeremiah, he commanded the Israelites, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. And so Christians are to be submissive to authority, 
regardless of what kind of authority you know that it, all legitimate authority realizing that uh, that all legitimate authority comes from God that's what Romans 13 says so how does this apply to us it means that Christians should drive the speed limit <laughs> we should um, pay our taxes yeah, Christians should vote we should uh, abide by dress codes and employee handbooks and, and student handbooks our lives should be characterized by submission we submit to authorities we're not a rebellious people um, that's what characterizes our lives of course there may be times when like Peter we have to obey God rather than men uh, you know if uh, if a government or a, a governor or a ruler or, or some kind of authority uh, tells us to do something that contradicts the law of God. But our disobedience toward an authority should probably be the exception rather than the rule in our lives. And then, uh, so then if, if and when we do take an exception with an unlawful use of authority, our civil disobedience is, should be all the more impactful because it demonstrates to everyone around us that our stand is a matter of conviction, not, not a matter of preference. So Christians don't disobey authorities because they don't like what they say, or they don't, they don't like their rules. That's not, that's not how we live. We only disobey authorities if, they're, uh, if their laws and, and their commands contradict the law of God. And, uh, and he says, another thing that's supposed to characterize us, we're to be prepared for every good work. And that's a command, to be prepared. That's a good thing to ask ourselves, I think, this morning. Are you prepared for every good work? Are you prepared to change a diaper? Are, are, you, are you prepared to share the gospel? Because that's, what, that's the command here, be prepared for every kind of good work. Uh, you know, uh, Christians are to be people who are always ready to help, ready to give, ready to teach, ready to comfort ready to heal, ready to forgive, ready to serve, ready to pray, ready to worship, ready to encourage, ready to correct. We're to be ready for every kind of good work. And there, obviously there are many, many different kinds of good works that we can and should do. And then in verse 2, Paul says we're to speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. As I was thinking about this, I thought there, there ought to be a rule that if you're a Christian who is on social media, you have to have Titus 3.2 like, like pasted <laughs> like above your monitor or right below it or something, right? Um, you should have, have this verse in front of you in big, bold letters whenever you're logged on because... We need to see things like verses like this. this is a, be a great verse to memorize. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is, I mean, I haven't been on social media for a long time, but this is one of the reasons that I got off of social media, is because I have some strong opinions. And I found myself saying things to people online that I would not have said of them, if it's not have said to them, if they were face to face with me, I found myself saying things that I just shouldn't say. And so Paul says we're to speak evil of no one, regardless of their political beliefs, uh, regardless of you know those kinds of things. Um, I think it'd probably be you know pretty overwhelming if if somebody did a study on how much damage is done by Christians who 
you know, speak evil of others on the internet, uh, a lot of times just discussing things they have no business discussing, accusing people of things they've never witnessed. And we take part in those things, it's not like it has no effect. And it's not as though God doesn't notice. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 12 that for every careless word that people speak, they will give an account for it on the day of judgment. In James 3, James talks about the tongue. There's a whole big section in James talking about the tongue, and, and he calls it a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, with our tongue, we curse people who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And so, and then he says, Paul reminds us that we're to show perfect courtesy. What does that mean to show perfect courtesy toward everyone? The, uh, the New American Standard actually translates that phrase, show perfect courtesy. It translates it as uh, showing every consideration for all men. Every consideration for all people. Um, and then in verse 3, it kind of connects that we see why, right? Uh, you know, for we ourselves were once the same way. So it's like, you know, Paul is saying, how do you show courtesy toward uh, selfish people? How do you show courtesy toward, um, you know, greedy people or proud people or, or mean uh, people? Well, you remember that you were once just like them. Um, or even if you didn't do some of the things that they did, to use the quote of the quote of our day, I think that I've heard this a lot in our day. You could check your privilege. You could remember that not everyone has had the same blessings and privileges that you have had, right? So Paul tells Titus to tell his congregation basically, don't use the sin of others as justification to take part in sin yourself. Um, one of my uh, one of my heroes, one of the, one of the guys I look up to a lot is a guy named uh, Ray Comfort. And he said this one time, he said, you know, it would be completely unreasonable to tell a blind man who bumps into you to watch where he's going. Right? It's just it's, it's, it's unreasonable. You don't, he's, he's blind. Watch where you're going, blind man. Uh, so that, you know, that would be an unreasonable... So in the same, thing, in the same way, the people who... Uh, who do mean things, they're just lost. I'd really love that word, how the Bible, you know, how we describes people that don't know the Lord, lost. It's just a great, great word uh, to really describe what it's like to be without Christ, is to be lost. You know, of course, um, this, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't um, speak out against sin. It doesn't mean that we, uh, you know, don't uh, confront uh, sin, but it's all about our heart posture toward the person. We should have a heart of compassion, uh, not self-righteousness. A heart of, of courtesy, to show courtesy toward other people. All right. And then, so, um, and then Paul, Paul gives his list, and it's quite a list. Uh, start, you know, there's a lot of uh, big bad words here in verse 3. So let's look at this list together, and um, I think it can be easy for us to... Uh, to think that some of these descriptives don't apply to us, especially if we've grown up in church a whole lot. So I'll do my best to try to drive it home to our hearts as we go through. Paul says that we were once the same way. We, we were once foolish, or a good synonym might be thoughtless. If you've ever said anything without thinking, I know I've been guilty of that. 
You know, um, if you've ever gossiped about someone or made a promise that you, you couldn't keep, foolishness or thoughtlessness, you know, called someone a, a hurtful or derogatory or degrading name, those are all foolish and thoughtless things that we are guilty of. And Paul says we've also, we've been disobedient. And uh, the word in Greek for disobedient is apithes, which basically means unwilling to be persuaded because of unbelief. It's just this deliberate decision that, you know, to reject God's commands and his instruction because you just don't want to do it. You, you know it's right. You know that it's what God wants you to do. And he, you, you know that, or that, you know, what you're about to do is something that he forbids. You know that it's wrong, but you're going to do it anyway. And I think we can all relate to that. I know I certainly can. Um, and uh, And then... We, we come to the fact where Paul says we were led astray, uh, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And this phrase, I think, really illustrates how sin works. Uh, first, it entices you, and it, and it deceives you, and then it enslaves you. And again, what probably you know, might first come to our minds are like the really, really serious things like alcohol addictions or, or drug addictions or pornography addictions. And, and so it might be easy for us to think, you know, I've never been enslaved to a, a passion or a pleasure until how much, you ask you, how much time have you spent on this, right? Or how much time have you spent in front of the TV or how much overeating have you done, you know? We all have our idols. Just because our idols aren't the same as someone else's idols doesn't mean it's not an idol. Um, in his com- I love uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage. Matthew Henry writes, <laughs> Pride commands one thing, covetousness another, and often a contrary. What vile slaves are sinners, while in their conceit, they believe themselves to be free. Uh, and we've all seen an illustration of this. You take, uh, you, you, you take a, a child and you, you give him a toy, right? And he's, I've got this toy for you. I want you to, you know, I want you to play with this toy. <laughs> right? A child doesn't want, to, the kid doesn't want to play with a toy. How do you get the child to play with a toy? Easy. Just bring in another kid. Have that kid play with that toy. So, so, so pride commands one thing. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's not good enough for me. You know, uh, I, you know that it's, it's not. I don't like it. And then until somebody else has it, pride commands one thing. Covetousness. When I see the other guy having what I didn't want, now I want it. Right? Pride commands one thing. Covetous commands another, and often a contrary. And I'm a slave to sin without even realizing it while I think that I'm free. So, led astray by... We know what that's like. We know what it's like to be led astray, to be a slave to various passions and pleasures. Right? And then Paul, finally, he reminds us that, that once we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And at first glance, that, that seems pretty harsh. I mean, you know... Surely that doesn't describe a nice guy like me, right? But the, the, the truth is that it did. It did describe me. And it can still describe me from time to time when I fall into sin. Um, you know, just think about every time you've been annoyed with somebody in the last week. Maybe it's somebody who cut you off in traffic. Maybe it's uh, somebody who was rude to you on the phone. 
Maybe it's, you know, a, a friend or a family member, somebody that's been, you or, or somebody you know has been involved in some kind of gossip. Or uh, maybe it's something that you've left undone. Maybe it's um, you've been unable to talk to somebody or unable to, uh, you know, to work something out with somebody because of something that's happened in the past that you've been unwilling to forgive. So all of us have been guilty of these things. So, and then we get to verse 4. And then Paul says, but how did God treat us? Did God give us what we deserve for all of our evil thoughts, words, and actions? Did God deal with us in that way? Did he give us justice? No. No, he gave us, he showed us goodness and he showed us loving kindness. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is where we get into the heart of chapter 3. This is what it's all about. Uh, Titus chapter 3, this is all about the God who saved us, and what that salvation means for our lives now. And then, as we'll see in verse 8, we're just kind of... I wish I could... This, again, this could be a whole sermon, but uh, we're going to go through this part really fast um, because I want to get to the imperative. So this is the indicative. This is what's true about God and what He has done for us. This is the good news of the Gospel, that, that He saved us. And... You know, it, God didn't see anything in us that was particularly um, obligating Him to save us. You know, um, He saved us just because of His own mercy. He, he didn't see anything in us that was especially pleasing or anything that merited our salvation. It wasn't because we were especially smart or kind or humble or more, more humble than other people or anything like that. We were just as bad in the sight of a holy God as anyone else, as everyone else. God didn't see any of our supposed good works as obligating Him to save us. God saved us because God is a Savior. God saved us because He's a Savior. He set His love on us because He chose to, because He delights in showing mercy. And he, he gave us new hearts Regeneration, right? God made us new people from the inside out. The washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He gave us new hearts with new desires. And He declared us to be righteous through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, by His grace alone. And then He went even further than that. Paul says He made us heirs. According to the hope of it, co- the Bible says that we're co-heirs with Christ. He went even further than that. And it, like the father of the prodigal son that Jesus told the, the story about, you know, God didn't just make us servants. He welcomed us home as sons and daughters. It is, it is absolutely incredible. So that's the, the truth. That's the indicative. That's what Paul says. That's what's true about God and, and, and His people. And then in verse 8, so now we get to the imperative that said how we should live in light of that. Because the, the God we worship and serve, the God who created us and saved us, Paul says this is what he is like. 
And he is who we are to be like. We should imitate him. And so, how do we imitate God? Paul says, I want you to insist on on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's, That's how we do it, Paul says. We are to devote ourselves, be devoted and be careful or thoughtful, intentional in doing good works. Right? Not, not just doing what you can when it's comfortable or when it's convenient. Be careful, or some translations say anxious even. Anxious to do good for people. To do good for all people and all kinds of people. I'm sure we can probably think of people that we're in no hurry to do good toward. Uh, people who have been mean to us. People who have insulted us. People who have... Uh, taken us for granted or, or took advantage of us. We might want to say to ourselves, but they, you know, they were mean to me. They've, they're always so selfish. They don't deserve me for, for me to do good to them. And Paul, I think, would say, exactly. That's exactly why you should do good to them because you deserve nothing but God's wrath and yet He did good to you. And so now God commands you to do good to others even to those who don't deserve it I don't know if if you guys have the same problem but when I look at my own heart and life and my own habits often what keeps me from meeting a need that I see that I could meet is I immediately start doing this cost benefit analysis in my mind right I, I see the the man or the woman with a cardboard sign on the on the corner that says "Please help, God bless," and there's a million things. You know, no ca- Who carries cash anymore, right? No cash, no time. Don't know them. What's really convicting is: Have you ever done? I don't know if you guys have done this. I've done this, and it's really convicting to think about all the times that I've looked away. You ever just look away, just like pretend they're not there. At the least, what I could have done is rolled down the window and asked for their name and asked how I could pray for them. See, what Paul is saying here, love, love doesn't have expectations that have to be met before we show kindness and grace toward people. Love just does what, what is needed whenever it's needed to whoever needs it. And uh, John talks about this in his letter, 1 John three sixteen to 18 I think it's really helpful. It says, By this we know love, that He, speaking of Jesus, He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love, how does, how does God's love abide in him? rhetorical question but it doesn't this is what he's saying little little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth so that's what paul is saying here we're we're to live lives devoted to good works we're to be careful thoughtful intentional in doing good works we're to be the kind of people who are always making plans about who we can minister to who we can love and serve, and then going and loving them, going and serving them. And so, what should that look like? Well, 
it's going to look different, obviously, very different for different people, depending on your, your vocation, your skills, your age, where you live, all of those things, right? Um, but the, the point is, is that we are to be devoted to good works. We are not to live for, for ourselves. Um, and the, the word in Greek where it says uh, to devote themselves to good works, uh, the, so the, in English it says to devote, but um, in, the, in the Greek to translate it more literally, the way to say it would be to take the lead. Uh, so it has this idea, like it carries with it the idea of, of Christians being the worldwide leaders in good works. That's what made me think of you know, the Salvation Army doing the most good. So it's like when people see us at our jobs, at school, at, in our communities, that it should be undeniable that we are the people who do the most good. It should be obvious to everybody by the way we live. When they see us, they should be able to say, those are the people who are, every time I see them, they're doing some kind of good thing for someone else. So we should ask ourselves this morning, are we people who are, devoted to doing good? Are we eager to help people? Are we looking to meet needs around us? Uh, at my job, I'm very blessed to have, um, not everybody has this, obviously, but I have an hour for lunch each day, and I think about how I spend that time. How should somebody like me, who's supposed to be devoted to good works, how am I supposed to spend that hour? And somehow I doubt that it's, you know, watching YouTube videos, or uh, scrolling through some kind of social media or watching TV. Rather, it should be spent in prayer or taking a coworker to lunch, uh, delivering a meal to a shut-in, visiting someone in a nursing home, getting a phone call in with a, a fellow church member or a family member. And what a, what a testimony it is to the power of the gospel when the world sees a Christian use the time that anyone else would use to please themselves to instead serve others. What a, what a, a testimony that is. That's God's grace at work in the, li- in the lives of his people. Others may do good because of what they get in return, or because it makes them feel good about themselves. But another thing that sets Christians apart is that Christians do good because it's who we are. We, we did nothing to earn or deserve the grace of God. It was bestowed upon us because of who God is. And so in the same way, the good things that we do for others should flow out of our new nature in Christ. Uh, We represent the God who continually gives good things to people who don't deserve them. And so we, in turn, should continually do good, even to people who don't deserve it, because our hearts have been changed, because it's an act of worship to our God that we seek to meet the needs of others because we love God and because we're thankful. It's a way of us showing our thanks to him. And Paul says these things are excellent and they're profitable for all people. Being devoted to good works, it's, it's, it's good for everybody. And any kind of transitions, it goes back to, uh, I think, you know, talking about the Judaizers, most likely, in verse 9, um, people who stir up division, people who cause strife. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, uh, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
So it should be obvious that, you know, doing good to all people is what we should be devoted to. And it should be obvious that we shouldn't waste time getting into foolish controversies and quarrels. But because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, I think maybe this isn't always so obvious. I think it's easy for us to get bogged down in those kinds of things because what tends to happen is that we tend to elevate the importance of something because of how important it is to us instead of how relevant or important it actually is. And so in Paul's day, there were many people who devoted themselves to these kinds of things, to divisive speculations and arguments. And Paul talks about them not just here in Titus 3, but in other places. He talks about them in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I just want to read 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, because I think it's a helpful cross-reference. He gives this, this contrast. He, he tells Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So we see here, same thing, genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim or the goal of our charge or our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we find that same so Paul is, find a very similar thing what Paul tells Titus these same people are in Crete doing the same kinds of things right and I, we see that we, we see these kinds of things today I just wanted to point one out because it's a, it, it is a major movement today of vain discussion and speculation that is dividing and destroying uh, churches some of you may have heard of it and, and many of you maybe have not and it can be recognized in terms such as social justice, uh, critical race theory, and intersectionality. And I think it's a real clear parallel in our day of the kind of thing that Paul was, fight, was fighting against in his day. If you're unfamiliar with those terms, uh, there's two books I can recommend. One is by Vody Bauckham called Fault Lines, and another is by a guy named John Harris, and it's called Social Justice Goes to Church. But Basically, many professing Christians and even pastors and leaders have either knowingly or unknowingly uh, sought to promote Marxist ideologies by arguing about and even redefining the meaning of words such as justice, uh, racism, white supremacy. Just like in Paul's day, there were people promoting these vain discussions and they didn't have an understanding of what they were saying or what they were talking about. In the same way, it's happening in our day. And it really is. It's splitting churches all over the country. People who think that they understand justice and reconciliation, but it's not the way that the Bible understands justice and reconciliation. And so Paul says, stay away from these things. And stay away from these kinds of people who just want to argue, who just want to stir up division. As for a person who stirs up division, he says, after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is 
self-condemned. And so Paul says to Titus that, you know, look, there comes a point when after you've confronted someone repeatedly about a sinful behavior, you realize that you're, they're not really listening to you. <clears throat> they don't really want to change. Um, in the uh, Greek, the word for um, becoming warped in their thinking is it like a, a past tense and then uh, and then sinful is in the present tense. So we see that it's like these people were deceived, they became warped in their thinking, then they remained in their sin. And I think that, that, that points something out to us. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing how we, as human beings, how easily we can be deceived. I do this all the time in uh, street evangelism. Uh, in street evangelism, I'll come up to somebody and I'll say, could you please spell the word shop out loud? Yeah, S-H-O-P. Okay, what do you do when you come to a green light? Stop. No, 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 a green light. Say, oh, 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 yeah, you, know, you actually go at a green light. It's, it's amazing how easy it is for us to be deceived. We can be easily, easily deceived. We can easily make a lapse in judgment that gets us into a wrong belief. But the thing is, is that it's our pride that will keep us there. So... A simple misunderstanding or a lapse in judgment might get us into a wrong belief, but it's our pride that will keep there. And, and a lot of the time, most of the time, heretical and, and divisive beliefs and teachings are not just a matter of bad theology. They're a matter of stubbornness of heart. They might begin by a genuine misunderstanding of a certain doctrine, but they're continued by a refusal to reconsider your position in the light of God's word. And in light of the godly counsel of other believers. And so people who go astray in this way are self-condemned because of their stubborn refusal to heed the warnings and admonishments that they're given that, that, that are given to them. And and this is why studying the Bible within a godly community is so important. This is why church membership is so vitally important. This is why studying these things and trying to live these things out and work these things out within the context of a local church is so important. Proverbs says, Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. We should not trust our own judgment alone. We need each other. And then so here, uh, as in other places in his letters, Paul affirms the process of church discipline. Uh, pastors and elders are to go to those who persist in sin, confront them, admonish them. They're to do this with love and with patience, not being too quick to remove someone from membership, but also not willing to allow someone to believe that they're in good standing in God's church if they are not. If necessary, after multiple attempts to, to plead with and persuade the person to change their behavior, if they still refuse... And Paul says we have nothing more to do with them. And I think, I think it's important to point out, again, this is within the context of church discipline. Paul's not telling us here, if somebody sins against you twice, give them the silent treatment. I don't think that's what's being said here, right? Jesus said, you know, Peter says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven, up to seven times? He says, no, 70 times seven. Right? So Paul's talking about the process of church discipline here. Um, and it's for the good of the church, obviously, but it's also for the good of that person. So that that act of discipline might 
the hope is and the prayer is that 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 act of discipline would bring them to repentance. That's what we want. And that's what good pastors do and good elders do. Love tells the truth and good elders uh, and pastors protect the flock. Right? And then we get to verses 12 through 15, which I'm just going to zoom right <laughs> because we're, uh, I'm sure we're out of time. Um, so Paul writes to Titus with some personal concerns and exhortations. We see some other names here. Um, and uh, he, he plans to send Artemis and Tychicus to Crete to uh, relieve Titus and to make it possible for Titus to visit him in Nicopolis, um, which was uh, a, a seaport city just northwest of the city of, of Corinth. And, um, and we see an exhortation to support these guys, uh, Apollos and uh, Zenos. And, um, and it may be that Apollos and Zenos may have actually been the, uh, the men who delivered this letter to Titus. It's a good possibility there. So Paul says to Titus, you know, give them whatever they need. Make sure that they don't lack anything. And then again, in verse 14, he repeats it again. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Um, devoting yourself to good works, Paul says, is something that has to be learned. It's, it's, it's not all automatic. Let, our people must learn to devote themselves to good works. You can learn to be devoted to good works, or you can learn to be idle, but you're going to be learning one or the other. Um, the truth is, as I think about life and death and eternity, which should always be at the front of our minds... I realized that I wasted the first 27 years of my life. And I don't want to finish this, this race at the pace of a light jog. I want to sprint to the finish line. I want to live abounding in the work of the Lord. I don't want, I don't want to be idle. Um, and, and I think that's what Paul would say to us this morning, is we don't want to be idle. We want to be devoted. We want, we want to be fruitful. We want to be abounding in all kinds of good works. I want to show that God's grace that had been given to me was not given in vain, but that it resulted in a life that sang a song of praise back to Him and, and, and sang a song of love toward other people. Um, you know, God has given us His Word. He's, he's given us each other so that we might help each other do this. To learn to live fruitful lives devoted to good works. But it only happens if you let God's word and, and the counsel of others, of other godly believers in, and you let it change your way of life. You have to live an examined life, a life of repentance and faith. And that is what results in a life that is devoted to good works. And then finally, as Paul, so many times Paul ends his letters, he says, grace be with you all. Last phrase of this letter. That's what it's all about. Paul's prayer for the, the believers in Crete as well as his prayer for the believers in all of his letters so that they were addressed to at all the different churches. And that's it's my prayer for us also that God would give us grace. We need God's continued grace upon us. His unmerited favor. I've been listening to some different sermons and... Um, one of the sermons that I heard recently, because I'm going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, you know, if I were to ask you the definition of grace, we took the kids 
took Graham, Graham what is grace? It's a undeserved gift. That's right. See, the kids learned that at the uh, youth conference that we went to. It, it, grace is an undeserved gift. And he talked about how saying that grace is an undeserved gift or it's unmerited favor, it's good. It's a, right, it's a good and true and right definition. But in a sense, it's kind of incomplete. Because grace is not just, for, it's not just the forgiveness of God. The grace of God does something. A more complete definition might be the, the undeserved gift of God that results in a life of holiness. That's, that's really what God's grace is. When someone receives God's grace, it doesn't result in just uh, forgiveness of sin. It certainly does. But it results in, in their life being transformed. And it results in them living a life of good works. Grace is empowering. It does something. It drives us. It, you know, it empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do the works that God has called us to do, to put sin to death and to obey our Lord. So it, it, not, only, it not only opens our eyes to the truth and brings us to repentance and faith in, in Christ, it continues to teach us. Grace teaches us and trains us. And what, we say, in, in what Paul said in chapter 2, what we looked at a few Sundays ago, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and embrace a life of faith and sacrificial love so that we might bear fruit for God and live lives that are worthy of the good news that we say we believe. That's what grace does. That's what grace does. And so, as I close, I'll just read this verse in, uh, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8-9. He says, For you know the grace of our Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your grace given to us today and every day would, uh, would not be received in vain. I pray that your grace given to us would cause us to abound in every kind of good work. I pray that we would be known throughout our communities as people who do the most good. Please help us to turn away from pursuing our own comfort, from pursuing our own luxury and security. Please help us, Lord, to turn away from that and instead pour our lives out for the blessing of others, to be devoted to good works, works of worship, works of of praise, uh, works of all kinds of good works, the works of service to others. Lord, may we live lives that are empowered by your grace.